Let's start by praying before we study Genesis 18. Our Father, we thank you for the word of God. We know that it is our life. It is truth. It is the only way of salvation. We thank you that we have faith because of it. Thank you for working in us and giving us your spirit to teach us, to show us, to indwell us, and to give us the grace that we need to live according to your word. Continue to do so. Show us from this passage, from the life of Abraham and Sarah, in contrast to the wicked people around them, how we ought to live, how we ought to be before you, knowing that we are saved by faith in Christ. So may we model Christ and, and model the saints of old in the way that we live. Be with us as we study this, for we ask in Christ's name. Amen. The first part of chapter 18, verses 1 to 15, 18, 1 to 15, the Lord appears to Abraham and also to Sarah and to reiterate the promise that God made to Abraham that he would have a son, Isaac, and it would be through Sarah. Let's now see what it says. 18, 1. The first section will be 18, 1 to 8. Now, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant. And he hurried and, uh, to prepare it. And he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Now, in verse one, it says the Lord appeared to him. Yes. The Lord appeared to him. We have this said in other places, such as in chapter 17, 17, verse one. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him. And then it says in 1722, and when he finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. God went up from Abraham. The same with this passage, 18.1, the Lord appeared to him. And then in verse 33, verse 33, and as soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed. And Abraham returned to his place. Notice also when it says the Lord appeared, it is in our English Bibles with four capital letters, L-O-R-D, four capital letters, L-O-R-D. This means in the Hebrew language, it's the word Yahweh or sometimes translated Jehovah. Yahweh or Jehovah is the one who appeared to Abraham. Then it begs the question, in this word, by the way, it occurs 10 times in this chapter. 10 times in this chapter, it's saying that Yahweh appeared to Abraham. Yahweh. That's evident in 18 verse 1. It's another major place where it's evident is in verse 13. 
And the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to Abraham. We know he is continuing to dialogue with Abraham. And then in 33, as we just read, the Lord departed from him after he finished talking to him. So it is Yahweh who appeared to Abraham. We need to understand that this word and, and who it is that appeared to Abraham. We know from John 1.18, no one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. The only begotten Son or the only begotten God in the bosom of the Father, He, the Son, explains the Father. He is the one who explains, interprets, reveals the Father to us. But no one has seen God, the Father, at any time. That means it's impossible for this revelation to Abraham to be the Father himself. Right. It cannot, could not have been the Father himself. It had to be Christ, because he's the only one who reveals himself to people. And in this case, Abraham and Sarah. He is the only one. Now, do we have evidence that the Bible actually asserts or acknowledges that it is uh, that Abraham knew and Abraham believed that it was the Lord, the Lord Jesus, the Lord Christ, who actually did appear to him? Yes. Is there any evidence within this passage? I would say there is evidence in this passage because in the passage, he with great eagerness hosts these three men. With great eagerness, he hosts them. And whether or not he initially knew who they were, later he finds out who they really are or were. And he still has great eagerness and still treats them with great respect and does whatever he needs to accommodate them. Okay? <laughs> If initially he did not know, after they appeared and after he dialogued with them, then he realized, certainly by that point he realized, and he's treating them in the proper way. So that's one indication. Another indication is in verses 9 to 15, when the promise is reiterated that Sarah will bear a son, the Lord is speaking to him, and the Lord knows exactly what Sarah did in her tent. She laughed when she first heard it. So even though Sarah was laughing to herself, laughing in her heart, not out loud and not going around and telling all the women, a crazy man just came and told Abraham something. She didn't do it in that way. She laughed inside. And in that way, Abraham is knowing that it's the Lord himself right there before him, dialoguing with him because the Lord reveals what even Abraham probably did not know because it's in Sarah's tent. The Lord is talking to Abraham separate from that and telling and confronting Sarah about her laughter. Furthermore, it is very clear in um, the dialogue or the prayer or the petition that Abraham presents to the Lord in verses 22 to 33. He calls him the Lord. And he uses a different word, which we will address later. He does use a different word for Lord, but he does address this one who is deity in his presence as the Lord. He does do so. 
Now that's evident within this passage. Let's also turn to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, where our Lord Jesus says the same thing, that Abraham saw me. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. 848. John 848. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? They're asking about his identity as though he never told them. Verse 54, Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. And you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. And if I say that I do not know Him, I shall be a liar like you. But I do know Him and keep His word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews therefore said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Jesus clearly tells them that he is greater than Abraham. To them, when they hear that, they are incredulous because Jesus is promising that they won't die, meaning eternal death. They won't die if they believe what he's saying. And they're saying, well, Abraham died. The prophets died. So how are you greater than they are? His answer is that, verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it and was glad. Abraham rejoiced at seeing the day of Christ He saw it. He was glad to see it. And Abraham, though he had lived 2,000 years before the incarnation and ministry of Christ, the people are perplexed. You, Jesus, you're not even 50 years old. How could you and Abraham have had any kind of interaction when Abraham was alive and when Abraham saw you, rejoiced in you, and was glad in you? How do we know any of that? How can you claim that? That is the objection of the people. And his answer, 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Before Abraham was born, before he ever existed, Christ says, I am. Not I was, not I had been, but I am. I am, which is from Exodus 3, 14 and 15. God told Moses, Tell the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. This is another way for the name of God to be expressed. And Jesus takes that name upon himself. His enemies knew he was doing that, 59. That's why they wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him for that. Because the penalty for blasphemy was death. Now they should have gone through a court process. 
not just do it on, on the spot, spontaneously. However, they knew that the death penalty was deserved for those who blasphemed God. But Jesus did not blaspheme God because Amen. he truly was God in human flesh. And he truly did appear to Abraham. And Jesus told us there in John 8, Abraham knew. Abraham knew who encountered him. And this is important to understand because we must believe that Abraham believed in the gospel of Christ. Right. That Abraham believed in the coming day when Jesus Christ would die on the cross and rise from the dead for the forgiveness of his sins and eternal life. Not only for Abraham, but for all the nations because God intended not only for Abraham, but for the people of many nations to believe the same gospel that Abraham believed. Praise the Lord. We must believe this, that there is only one gospel from Adam until the end of the world, from Genesis to Revelation. Right. There are not different gospels. There's only one definition of the gospel which exists from Adam until the last person is saved, until the end of the world, until the return of Christ. That's the only gospel, only one gospel. Amen. Now, let's reiterate this point in reference to Abraham because of its importance. It is a very important point to establish. And to do so, let's go to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, verse 6. Galatians 1, verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even though we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. The Galatians, because they have some heretics infiltrating their midst, teaching them to be circumcised and by implication obey everything in the law of Moses, that is, believe in Christ plus be circumcised. At least do that. Believe in Christ, plus be circumcised, then you'll go to heaven. Then you will be saved. That is the false doctrine that Paul is combating. Now, if we were to look at it from our perspective today, just our human perspective today, from the flesh, we would say, well, what's wrong with that? They're just trying to be a little more faithful, a little more obedient. What's wrong with that? It's not that different. It's not that different from believing in the gospel. So just because they added just one thing, that's circumcision, what's, what's wrong with that? We would not, if we weren't thinking properly, if we were not thinking biblically, we would not think that that was such a big deal. But it is a big deal. Amen. It is a big deal. And in the case of Galatians, Cephas and Barnabas, they refused to eat with Gentiles. That's another thing. And they stood condemned, chapter 2 says. 2.11 says that they stood condemned because of that. 
And then think about that today too. If somebody in our midst refused to dine with somebody else, a true brother, because they were worried about what their own friends would say about that, merely that because they were from a different group, a different race, uh, something like that, and you didn't want to upset your friends because you are all of the same group, and you went into, you didn't go and dine with somebody else, would that, would we consider that to be so detestable that we would have to confront that person, that brother, and say, you stand condemned. Why are you doing that? You are denying the gospel when you do that. No, we wouldn't. Unless we were thinking biblically, we would not think it was such a big deal. We'd say, oh, just let it go. It's not a big deal. Everybody's got their faults. Everybody does, has their mistakes. Let's just move on and not worry about it. Really, that's the way we would think. Yeah. But that's not what Paul did in Galatians 1. Right? right. He is very upset and he says that there are people who are twisting and contorting this grace of Christ for a different gospel. A different gospel. He says gospel, 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 gospel of Christ. There is only one true gospel, but false teachers use the word gospel but have a different meaning. That is the problem. And because of that, he says, whether I come back to you or an angel from heaven comes to you and preaches a different gospel, whoever it might be, that person deserves a curse. And when I say this, I'm not trying to please men. I'm trying to please Christ. If I were trying to please men, I would not say that. I would say that gospel A, gospel B, Z, all the way to Z, they're all okay. They're all fine because I want as many friends as possible. If I were trying to please men, that's what I would say. But I'm not trying to please men. So I'm only going to say what Christ wants me to say, what Christ told me to say the first time I preached it to you, Galatians, the true gospel. So that is the one true gospel that the Apostle Paul asserts. There's only one true gospel. Then the next question is, did Abraham believe in that gospel? And actually, before we get to the next question, keep your finger in Galatians and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 so that we have a succinct, concise definition of the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, can the word gospel be properly defined in different periods of time, in different circumstances, in different locations in the world, different geographical places? Or is the word gospel a fixed definition that cannot be moved and changed depending on the person or depending on the location, depending on the period of time. Is there only one gospel for all time? The 1 Corinthians 15 defines the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, 1. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. There we have 
verse 1, the gospel. He says, I already told you what that was when I preached to you, but now I'm writing it to you. And I'm telling you in verses 3 and 4, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures of the Old Testament. He was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the gospel. The person and work of Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. That's the gospel. That's what we must believe. Everybody must believe. All the nations must believe this one gospel. From the Old Testament to the New Testament, that is the gospel. Now go to Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verse 6. Did Abraham believe this one gospel? Did Abraham believe this one gospel? Galatians 3, 6. Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Verse 8. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. The Apostle Paul clearly says in verse 8 that the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. The gospel. Whatever Paul said in chapter 1 cannot contradict what he said in chapter 3. That means that Abraham believed the one gospel that Paul preached in chapter 1. And did Paul preach the death and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life? Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Yes. Whatever he's saying in Galatians is what he had been preaching. And now he's saying that the gospel he has been preaching that no one should ever contradict is that same gospel that was preached to Abraham. And he believed in that. And whoever among Jews and Gentiles who believe it shall be blessed by that same gospel. Jews or Gentiles are blessed as Abraham was. And does this gospel, even in Paul's exposition here, include Christ's death? Yes. Yes. Look at 313. 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. From verse 8 and verses 8 and 13, Paul, when he said Abraham believed that gospel that was preached to him. It included the death of Christ. The death of Christ. And further, verse 14 brings Abraham, the death of Christ, the Holy Spirit, uh, faith, all of this together for Jew and Gentile. Verse 14. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Everything that he just said in the last verse that he quoted there in verse 13, quoting from Deuteronomy 21, 23, he says, all of this is for the purpose. In order, that means purpose. What was the purpose or goal of God in this? In Christ Jesus, 
So that's how, when we say by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, right here. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham. Well, what was that blessing? What was that blessing? Everything that Abraham enjoyed, the Gentiles now enjoy, might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Regeneration, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, justification by grace through faith in Christ. All of this is what Abraham enjoyed because he believed in the death and resurrection of Christ. Now, Back to Genesis 18. I say all of this because Abraham is in the Bible and even outside the Bible, universally known as the father of the faith, father of the faithful. We are his descendants, spiritual descendants, because we believe in the same one in whom he believed. His salvation is the same as our salvation. That's important. It's important to establish that. Now let's return to Genesis 18 and we see that he appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. Now the oaks of Mamre, uh, a grove of oak trees, belongs to Mamre. And this is noted here to remind us of the temporary nomadic life of Abraham. He was going from place to place, even though the land of Canaan was given to him as a pledge, as a promise He did not actually own it in his own lifetime. But he will own it in terms of the eternal Canaan or the eternal city, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, Mount Zion from above. He will own it in that sense. And so will all who follow in the footsteps of Abraham. This is telling us or reminding us that when God made promises to Abraham, they were not They were not merely or exclusively physical promises. He was not putting his hope. Abraham was not putting his hope in his riches. He was a nomad. He had plenty of wealth and he could have established a city. But he was told not to do any of that, to continue in that, so that he would be a model of those who were looking for the heavenly cities. Abraham was not like Uh, an animal who is only concerned about his survival by feeding his mouth. That is not what Abraham was about. He was not even what people do generally who are seeking for peace and progeny and a pot belly. That's what people are seeking. They're seeking for those things. They want to live as long as possible, eating the best that they can eat as long as possible. They want to have children and see their grandchildren, which in and of itself is not a problem. Eating in and of itself is not a problem. But when you just live for the family, or you just live for the food, or you just live to be in your cloistered, secluded place where nobody can trouble you and where you won't even hear of warfare going on, that's what I mean by peace, when you want to live that way, then there's something wrong. But people think Abraham was living like that because he did not know anything about the spiritual, eternal promises in Christ. And to think that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and all the rest were only thinking about this world is not only foolish, it is quite destructive. It is quite destructive because there is no way anybody who is a true saint of God 
thinks that way and lives that way. Amen. We live for the world to come. Right. We are blessed by God with our physical resources to use them for the glory of God and the kingdom of God for things yet future. Yes, that's what we do. And that's what Abraham did. And we're reminded of that because of where he lived. He had a tent door, verse 1. He had a tent door. He did not have a permanent station. Now, he's there in the heat of the day. In the heat of the day. The heat of the day, in the midpoint heat of the day. He is there because we know at, in their time, it, we, we don't know if, likely it was that there was more of a custom, more of a societal practice to house and entertain strangers, wayfarers, people traveling from place to place, to do so on your own property by your own means than to relegate them to a hotel or an inn. Right. Nowadays, we have lots of hotels and inns, and there is less personal generosity among us because we relegate it to a business to do for, for profit. Now, not to say that in and of themselves, inns or hotels are out of place or unnecessary, but if the society is not having a love motive, a generosity motive to practice hospitality, then that is a sin among the people to not entertain like that. But that's not the way Abraham was. Abraham went out there in the heat of the day because it's likely that somebody in the heat of the day, as he's traveling, will need water, yeah. will need refreshment, will need some food. And he's doing that in the heat of the day. Verse 2. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, uh, we'll, we'll pause there, verse 2. It says three men he saw. Three men. Now, I already said that one of these three men was the Lord, yes. uh, verse 1. Now, in verse 3, this is the first occurrence of the word Adonai. When he says, my Lord, or O Lord, when he says that, it's the word Adonai. It is not spelled the way verse 1 is spelled. In verse 3, it ought to be just a capital L and then little or small O-R-D. And that we will see several times here, five times in this chapter. Verse 3 is the first time. And then if you go to verse 27, verse 27, we'll see it there. Abraham says, uh, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. That is Adonai. And in verse 30, Oh, may the Lord not be angry. May Adonai not be angry. Verse 31, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to Adonai. Verse 32, Oh, may Adonai not be angry. Okay? Now, this word Adonai is used for the same individual, the same person, Yahweh. These two words are used interchangeably for the same individual. And I already said the pre-incarnate Christ. Christ who temporarily appeared to Abraham. This means that this one, these two terms, Yahweh and Adonai, are applicable to the one person of the Trinity, Christ. Now, we don't have time, and maybe later we can discuss how these are applicable to the Father and the Spirit. But at least from this passage, we know they are applicable 
to Christ. He is called both Yahweh and Adonai. And he is one of these three men. The other two men, the other two men, notice it says in verse 22, 18.22, Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Now when it says the men, how many of the men while Abraham is still before the Lord? It has to be two of them. Two of them proceeded while Abraham petitions the Lord about Sodom. And we know two of them proceeded because it says in chapter 19, verse 1. Notice what it calls these men, the two men. 19.1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. They proceeded on, and now they're called, 19.1, they're called angels. The scriptures sometimes does this. The scriptures sometimes, it will use the word man or men to describe angels, and at other times they will call them angels. That's when these angels appear in human form. When these angels come in a body, in a human form, they are called men. Not that angels are always appearing in that form, but when they do, they are called men. Otherwise, they don't have bodies. It says in Hebrews 1.14, Are they not ministering spirits sent out to render salvation for the, uh, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? They are spirits. They are invisible by their, in their natural condition. However, being heavenly creatures, they are, they are able to perform miraculous feats by God's power. So they can take on human form. And are not the angels servants of Christ? Yes, yes they are servants of Christ. Mm-hmm. He will send forth his angels to call out the elect, he says in Matthew 25. Mm-hmm. So call forth his elect. Matthew 24 and in 25, the angels go out to receive his elect. So here too, two out of the three men were angels. The third was the Lord Christ himself. Yes. Okay? Now... A couple of examples. Uh, perhaps let, let's just do one example. Matthew twenty, uh, no, Luke twenty-four, Luke twenty-four. Remember, at, at the time of the resurrection, there were angels at the tomb. Correct. Okay. Luke twenty-four, four. Luke twenty-four, four. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel. 24.4, it calls them two men, and they are in dazzling apparel. If we keep reading Luke 24, 24.23, 24.23, when that incident is being recounted, it says, and did not find his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Right. In 24.4, those two angels are called men because they came in human form. But in 24.23, it calls them angels. The scripture does this. If we want other examples, we won't turn there. Daniel 8.16 and 9.21, the angel Gabriel, he is clearly called an angel in Luke chapter 1 several times. In Daniel 9, 8, 16, he behaves like an angel, and he's called Gabriel. In 9, 21, and in 8, 16, he's also called a man. 
the man Gabriel, because when he appeared to Daniel the prophet, he appeared to him in human form, therefore he called him a man. That's who we have here appearing to Abraham. Christ, in human form, temporarily, not in his incarnation, but in temporary human form, and to angels. So Abraham, in verse 2, he shows them proper respect and, and homage. He's not worshiping these angels. That's not what's happening. In verse 2, he bowed himself to the earth. He bowed himself to the earth because this was a way, a, a way that often is the case, especially in ancient times, but even today in some places, to bow yourself before a respected person. Right. To bow like that. And that's what he did to show his respect for them. Which also shows us we have to be mindful, like Abraham was mindful. What are ways in which we should respect our elders or respect strangers, respect people in our society? Whether it is children to parents, husbands to wives, or adults to teachers, adults to uh, governing authorities, whatever it may, might be, adults in their employment, whoever it may be, there ought to be proper respect shown to those in authority. That's what Abraham is doing here. Now, verse 3, and he says, My Lord, or O Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Notice here, even though three men appeared, Abraham, for some reason, we don't know why, but for some reason he chose to address only one of the three. And who was the one of the three that he addressed? Christ. How do I know it was only one of the three? Well, in your English translation, it probably says, my Lord, which is singular. Singular. And it, that is the way in the Hebrew language. It's singular there, like, likely singular. And it is the word Adonai. And I would rather have it translated, O Lord, rather than my Lord, because of the way it is spelled in the Hebrew language. Adonai, or O Lord, Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Another way we know he is addressing one individual, that is Christ, is the possessive pronoun, your sight, your servant. Your sight, your servant. Your in the Hebrew language is singular. That's not evident in English, but it is evident in Hebrew, your is singular. He is addressing Christ only with this request. However, he knows that Christ is the authority in this group of three, but he's going to help all three. Verse 4, But please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves, plural, under the tree. In verse 4, the your feet. The your is plural and the feet is plural. That's evident. And then he says, rest yourselves. Though he addresses Christ, but he wants to help all three in verse 4. And why wash your feet and rest yourselves? Wash feet because they would either wear sandals or go barefooted for some time as they're traveling. In sandals or barefooted in their travels. And on dusty roads... They, they didn't have a lot of paved roads, 
So on dusty roads, your feet will get dry. Your feet will get, uh, get bothersome. It'll be irritating. Irritable. They will be irritable, and you will want to refresh yourselves, take a break, wash the feet, and all that. So, washing the feet, even though that is the, one of the dirtiest parts of the body, he's willing to do what it takes to help these men with that custom. Abraham. Not only that, verse 5, I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves, after that you may go on, since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do, as you have said. He's also going to bring a piece of bread. Now I think he's uh, using a modest statement, or an understatement, to tell them, I want to feed you a meal. Right. Okay, in English we have this phrase, well, why don't you get a bite to eat? A bite to eat. We don't literally mean just eat one piece, or one swallow of something. What we say in a modest way, in an understatement to somebody, um, because we're not trying to think too highly of ourselves, so we just say to people, come get a bite to eat, right? So that's what Abraham is saying. Piece of bread means come get a bite to eat, like we use it. I have to say these kinds of things. You know why I have to say these kinds of things? Because critics of the Bible are looking for all kinds of ways to say that Abraham lied to these three men. No, he didn't lie to of them. He did. he did not lie to them. He's not deceptive. No, he, he's not in, like that at all. He did not lie to them. Okay, then notice too what he uh, says. Your servant. He said that earlier in verse 3. 3 and 5, he called himself your servant. I am your servant. Take this from your servant. He, uh, he, being humble, knows that in this context, he is lower in rank than the ones that are being helped. He puts himself in that position. He doesn't look at himself in a prideful way, in a superior way. He wants to be helpful to the people around him. This is the way of all believers that they are looking for ways to help others as servants. Right. You are there in the synagogue. In, in verse 3, your servant, the your is singular because it is speaking about Christ, and servant is singular, that is who Abraham is. Yes. Okay, now, also if notice... If I may, another word I think that maybe is maybe more meaningful, submission. Submission. A servant submissive to. Yes, a servant submits to the authority. He does what he's supposed to do according to the context. That's right. Then they say, certainly go do it, right there in verse 5. So do as you have said. All right? They agree. Verse 6. They, so they, they are giving him opportunity to serve them, which, which also is good and necessary in a proper relationship. If you keep denying it, then what's the problem? If somebody wants to help you, wants to serve you, and you keep denying it, you say, no, 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 and you walk away, then what? What does that show about the one who was offered the help? It shows pride in their heart, right? If the one who has the ability to help does not help, then that's pride in his heart. But if the recipient or the proposed recipient does not receive the help, then there's pride in his heart. 
Correct? But they're not that way. They say, so do as you have said. Verse 6. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant. And he hurried to prepare it. And he took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them. And he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Abraham participates, Sarah participates, and the servant participates in all in order to help these guests, to help these visitors. They're all working together, helping each other in order to serve these guests. Notice too, it is fine flour, and in verse 7, a tender and choice calf. Tender and choice calf. And, verse 6, quickly... Yeah. Quickly. And then it says in verse 7, uh, Abraham ran. Isn't he an old man? 99. And he's, yes, he, he's 99. And he was running. Running. We don't know how fast, but it, it's at least conveying to us that he didn't take a leisurely walk from one place to the other, uh, you know, and, and then delay it by any means. He was very eager to go do that. And then it says, he hurried, the servant hurried to prepare it. Hurried to prepare it. Furthermore, verse 8, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. In our custom, usually, this is not the way it's done. Our way of fellowshipping and respecting our guests is to eat with them, usually, right? But in Eastern countries, in many places, the custom is not to eat with them. It's not showing disrespect, but it's showing more servanthood and more respect to let them eat and eat their fill, just in case there's not enough food. Let them eat their fill. And while you serve them, you keep making sure that they have enough water or they have enough bread or they have enough meat or they have enough vegetables. You just keep making sure. You're always asking them, would you like more of this? Would you like more of that? That's what Abraham was doing. Because that was the custom to show the servanthood and respect to the guests. Now think about this. Is this exclusive of Abraham? Or is this mentality and this kind of servanthood expected of all Christians? All Christians. Yes, all Christians. Now, it may be easy for us to say it's expected for all Christians, but... In our experiences, how many Christians actually have this attitude? How many Christians actually have this attitude? Romans 12, 13 teaches that all Christians, Romans 12, 13 teaches that all Christians should be practicing hospitality. 1 Peter 4, 9 says, be hospitable to one another without complaint. Without complaint, be hospitable to one another without complaint. And in Hebrews 13, 2, it says, Let us show hospitality to strangers, for some have entertained angels without knowing it. Some have entertained angels without knowing it. Likely an allusion to Abraham here and Lot in chapter 19, chapters 18 and 19, Abraham and Lot. Initially, it's likely that they did not know who actually was appearing to them, then they realized 
at some point, likely shortly thereafter, who it re really was. But from a distance, they just saw a stranger and thought, okay, here's a stranger. I'm in the custom of helping strangers, so I'm going to help this stranger. And it wasn't until the stranger came close enough that they realized, oh, this is not a typical yeah. stranger. This is the Lord Christ, or this is an angel. It happens later. So this is what we're supposed to do. So the key concept with hospitality is there are different ways to be hospitable. It's not just giving somebody something to eat. Right. But the, the key motive in hospitality is being generous with what God has given us to somebody in need, whatever that need might be, and doing it without complaint. And without the expectation that that stranger or that somebody, even if it's a friend, is going to give you something back. That he's going to give you equal or greater payment back. You know, it's not like businessmen do. Some businessmen practice hospitality, but why do they do that? They do it in order to get a sale. And they do it in order to get a huge profit, right? Now, in their custom, in their practice, in and of itself, if they are open and honest and genuine about their business dealings, there's nothing shady about doing that, okay? But in our case, or even in their case, if they're not making their true motives known, if they're not doing it for the right reasons, then in the case of a businessman, or even in the case of a Christian, when we practice hospitality, we have to check our motives. Why are we doing it? Yeah. Are we doing it for the right reasons? Are we doing it for the betterment of the person that is in our home? Or receiving a benefit from us, even if it's not in our home? That's what Abraham Sarah and the servant did. Now, 9 to 15, while they are there, it says in verse 9, Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, Behold, in the tent. Meaning, in Sarah's tent. Because it was the custom for the wife to have another tent. Um, another tent. And we have evidence of this in Genesis 24, 67, 24, 67, Genesis 24, 67, then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, into Sarah's tent. All right, so when he says, behold in the tent, in Sarah's tent, verse 10, and he said, they asked, where is she? Verse 10, and he said, who is the he? If your Bible does not capitalize the H of he, I think it should be capitalized because of what is about to be said. It is Christ, or it is the Lord. At the very least, if your Bible typically capitalizes H's for pronouns in reference to God, it should so do so in verse 10. And he, that is the Lord of verse 1, or the Adonai of verse 3, is now speaking in the singular, and he said. And we know a confirmation of that from what is about to be said. I will surely return to you at this time next year. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. And Sarah laughed to herself, or in her heart, saying, 
After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a son when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, Notice there, my Bible at least has a capital H. And he said, No, but you did laugh. You did laugh. The he of verse 10, and he said, is the same he of verse 15, and he said, both should be capital H's. This is confirmed by the promise made here, by the knowledge even of what's happening in Sarah's mind. And in verse 13, the dialogue of the he with Abraham is now that, that he is called the Lord, Yahweh. Verse 13, the Lord, Yahweh or Jehovah. And Jehovah said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Okay, that's who's speaking about Sarah. Now, this is another reason. Not only is this chapter, as I said earlier, showing and highlighting the godliness of Abraham and the promises of God to Abraham, but here we have a confirmation of the promise of a son to Abraham and Sarah, but especially having Sarah as the focus having Sarah in view and as the focus. That's what we have here in 9 to 15. They ask, where is Sarah, your wife? And so the promise is made that in the next year, this will happen. This was fulfilled in chapter 21, 1 to 7. In chapter 21 of Genesis, 1 to 7, that was a year later, that's when this was fulfilled. Isaac was born, and indeed, there is laughter when he was born. And Sarah, there, she laughed as well. Notice chapter 21. Chapter 21, verse 1. This is important to note. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said. And where did he say? Where had he said it? Chapter 18, our chapter. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. For Sarah, as he... It doesn't say for Abraham and Sarah, though that's true. The focus is on Sarah. For Sarah, as he had promised, so Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to, Abraham, bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Now it has actually happened a year later. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age age. In chapter 21, Sarah is laughing with a joyful laughter. She's laughing in faith. Laughing in faith in chapter 21. But notice in chapter 18, there is a bit of unbelief. And I will say it's a bit of unbelief. It's not a bunch of unbelief. It's not a mountain of unbelief. It's a bit of unbelief. 
And I say it's not a mountain of unbelief because she laughs in her heart. She doesn't actually open her mouth. If she had opened her mouth and told the other women, her servant women in the same tent, or if she had gone over to Abraham or gone over to the three angels or to the three men and even to Christ and did it right there, then that would have been blatant and brazen and obstinate and stubborn and stiff-necked. But she didn't do it like that. She had a bit of unbelief, temporarily even that. I say temporarily because Abraham and Sarah had to come together in faith, right, as husband and wife. And a year later she did conceive. I mean, she did conceive and then a year later did give birth. So it was even this bit of unbelief was temporary. And temporary and uh, small unbelief. It was unbelief, but just temporarily. Notice verse 12. She laughed to herself. After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also. And we know that there was initially likely unbelief because the Lord says in verse 13, Why did Sarah laugh saying, Shall I indeed bear a son when I am so old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. And that's how it ends. And Sarah doesn't object anymore. She did initially, but then once the Lord corrected her again, No, but you did laugh, she realized, and she was put in her place. This is why I'm saying it was a, a bit and temporary unbelief. And why was there a bit and temporary unbelief? Because she had not born a a child, conceived and born a child her whole life. So in that sense. But even then, we might think, well, she had a legitimate reason not to believe the Lord's word. Correct? We would say, we would like to excuse her because we want to also excuse ourselves and our friends. We want to say, well, it's okay. No. What was her problem? Her focus was not the word of God and the character of the God who presented the word of promise. Her focus was on what? Herself. Herself, her circumstances. Herself and her circumstances. Temporarily, for a bit. She focused on herself and her circumstances, not beyond by believing God through his word. That's that's on the norm for humanity. She fo- that, you know, who, who was this 100 years old had a child before? Yes. Who so is it a that's 100 years old that has done this? So she was, she was looking at the way the natural circumstances are. But what is God's answer? Verse 14. The Lord's answer. Christ's answer. Verse 14. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? This is what Jeremiah, he alludes to this in Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah 32. In this this chapter, the people of Judah and even Jeremiah and his relatives are about to lose their country and their land. Yet, God tells Jeremiah to do something that was very strange, very unusual to him, as a token or as a promise that eventually... Though they are going to be punished now, eventually they will come back to own this land. 
right? They will come back to own this land. Jeremiah 32, 16. It, the situation was bleak, but notice, 32, 16. After I had given the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, then I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing is too difficult for you. This is a reference or an allusion back to our chapter, Genesis 18, 14. Why do I say that? Because notice also in, seven, in verse 17, what does Jeremiah call the Lord? He calls him Adonai Yahweh. He uses both words together. The same two words we find in Genesis 18, he uses these two words together to refer to God. He calls him Adonai and Yahweh, or Yahweh and Adonai. And that God is the creator, which Abraham acknowledged in Genesis 14. The creator and, and possessor of heaven and earth. And then here, he says, um, nothing is too difficult for you. Nothing is too difficult. And that's what Sarah did not realize momentarily. She took her focus off of the word of God and put her focus on her circumstances and the natural outcome of things. That's where she went wrong. However, we should not. We should not look at Sarah as a miserable old woman who had no faith or barely had faith. That cannot be our perspective of Sarah. And I say for a couple of reasons. I already said because of Genesis 21, the fact that God gave her conception and birth because of chapter 21, but also it tells us in Hebrews 11.11, 11, Hebrews 11.11, 11, that she was a woman of faith. Hebrews 11.11, 11, by faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Yes. Remember when the Lord confronted her, she at first denied it, and then he said, no, but you did laugh, and then she kept quiet. Right. She kept quiet. Then she began to believe the word of the Lord instead of her miserable condition. She believed the word of the Lord. That's why she received ability to conceive beyond the proper time of life. Furthermore, 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. More evidence of Sarah's faith. 1 Peter chapter 3. In his exhortation to wives to submit to their husbands, to be godly in their character and not to focus on their physical beauty. He says in verse 5, verse 5, For in this way, in former times, the holy women also who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Verse 5, in former times, the Old Testament times, the holy women also, many holy women, he means, not just one or two. Right. He means many holy Amen. women. This was characteristic of holy women. 
that they hoped in God, adorned themselves with righteous behavior, manifested in submission to their own husbands, obedience to their own husbands, verse 6, and the specific example, thus Sarah obeyed Abraham. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children, spiritual children, if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. The women who model Sarah are also children of Sarah, holy women. And what was it that Sarah did? She obeyed Abraham. She spoke about him respectfully, calling him Lord. And remember, remember, she likely did call him Lord openly, but in Genesis 18, 12, when she says, my Lord being old also, in her heart, she also called him Lord. She didn't say that, that, uh, that uh, dirty old man. She didn't say, my, my wretched husband, my wretched man. She didn't say anything like that in her heart even, where it could be hidden and no one would know but the Lord. She didn't look at him that way. Inside, she called him my Lord. Not even just Lord, but my Lord. She spoke of him secretly in her heart with respect. And also, just a clarification, when it says Lord in 1 Peter 3, 6, this is meaning it in the sense of my master or my husband um, or in society when we want to be respectful to somebody in English, we see a stranger, a man, and we'll say, sir, or we'll see a woman and we'll say, ma'am or madam. We'll say that, sir or ma'am, to speak respectfully of somebody else. That's the sense in which she meant this. She didn't mean it in terms of Abraham being her God or her deity. She didn't mean it like that. She meant it in a respectful way, which in English sometimes that is used as well. And she didn't let anything frighten her. Anything that Abraham might do or anything somebody else might do or anything somebody else might say about her. Because if she came together with her husband Abraham, what could have happened to her among... It could have killed her. That conception, childbirth, the delivery could have killed her, right? What else could have happened? Once the child is born or once others see that she has conceived, what are they going to say of her? What could people say of her and Abraham? Not his. They could say that it wasn't his. So she bore this child or conceived this child illegitimately. What else could they have said? What, what, what are you, two old people, doing in your bedroom? Don't you know you need to give that up? Are you dirty or is your husband dirty? Are you, are you a filthy old woman too? Right? People think that way. They think that way. Any number of these things could have happened to them. But Sarah, she wasn't frightened with any fear. Not after her initial unbelief. She wasn't frightened by any fear. The same with Abraham. 
And she did what she needed to do because she was a woman of faith. She was a godly woman. All right, we'll pause there. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.